We are in the third section of the flood. And today, what we are going to be considering is um, what I refer to as new creation. There is this profound motif that is played out in the flood narrative that aligns with Genesis chapter 1. And it aligns with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the promise of his of his second coming and it also aligns with the history of Israel and what I said at the beginning of this series is that everything in the Bible can be found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that there are these motifs that we should be watching for that speak to God's redemptive purposes through human history and that we should understand our history because we are bound to repeat it um, and I think that this is this is an important aspect of this narrative um, it also is an important narrative that continually pushes us to a deeper understanding of both what it means to be righteous and a person after God's heart and also what does it mean when we say that God is sovereign. Um, there is this, this powerful balance. Um, there's there's a, this beautiful symmetry uh, around God's sovereignty over his creation. And when I say sovereignty, once again, I am not saying God's determined, determined will. That is, this is not a deterministic theology. I'm saying, I'm speaking of God's freedom, his absolute and total freedom to do what he wants, however he wants to do it, in accordance with his character and his purposes. And God's goodness will always inform God's sovereign acts in human history, um, even when it's wrath. For his wrath is nothing more than his love violated. I always say he hates sin and he wants to judge it fiercely because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. And so, um, so this is, um, these are important themes. And I want to just begin, there's this incredible, um, uh, this incredible passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and though it had been dead, still speaks. And though he be dead, being dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7 begins what is commonly called the hall of faith and it begins with this this uh, narrative around three key characters before the flood up through the flood and it's Abel and and it is Enoch and it is Noah and all of them were marked by the same thing they believed God they were righteous before God and what I said l last time we were together is that righteousness is not your perfect sinless ability to do everything right righteousness is your total dependence in spite of your brokenness to rely upon God 
and walk in obedience to him. That is a daily surrender to him. And what you have in these three guys, notice this, Abel believed God. I love what Bruce Waltke says, Abel believed God and he died. Enoch believed God and he did not die. Noah believed God and everybody else died. The outcome of their faith uh, is not the same, but they are recorded as having the same relational reality with God. And this shows the uniqueness of all of our relationships with God. Just because Abel was faithful before God, God did not stop Abel from being killed. Nor did he prevent the world from being destroyed. But the same thing applies to all three of them. Their righteousness was not determined by the end of their stories. Their righteousness was determined by their relationship with the living God which and, and it all points to a future hope that our narrative, our story now, is not when, our, when we take our last breath. This week, um, on February 8th, which is Thursday, um, is the two-year anniversary of my dad's death, the day I stood over my father and watched him take his last breath. And, and it's an impactful thing. It's, it's something that stirs up so much emotion when I think about it, I was away in the middle of my sickness last week on all these steroids teaching at a men's conference in Monterey, and I'm like sick, and I'm wired, and I have to share about my dad's death, and it immediately brought me to tears in front of all these guys, um, and because it's, it's still real, and it's still, it's, it's, I feel his absence in everything. Um, his presence is made known by his absence now, uh, you know, and and so this reality of death, but, but that's the thing for us as Christians is that one of the chief hopes of the Christian life is, is that the best is yet to come. That yes, the flood seems to continue to be a problem in our world. And all I mean by that is humanity seems bent on its own destruction. But God is a God who is in the business of creating things anew. And in Jesus, everything that God has to say has been said. He has nothing else to say other than what he has said and continues to say in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, we see the type in Noah, a man whose righteousness before God um, and the sacrifice that he makes to God at the end of the flood narrative is the salvation of the world, pointing us as a shadow to the one who is truly without sin, without blame, who also laid down his life. He is the one for the many and the many and the one, the representative man. New creation is wrapped up in the representative man. Noah is a type that is pointing us to our Savior. And I think that this is important for us when we think about, um, when we actually think about what it means to be righteous before God, what it means to live a life of faith. It means that we daily make a decision to surrender ourselves to King Jesus. So I want to jump into this narrative because um, this narrative is consistently playing on the tensions between this good God who has brought judgment to the world, but at the same time, he is also a God who is continually presenting his grace, his unwillingness to forget his covenant that he has made, the promise that he has made to a rebellious, 
creation, specifically humanity. And in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, it says, remember we ended the narrative last time I was teaching with the flood has come. Everything that was living that was not on that boat died. And the, it says the waters broke up from below and above. And it is, it is what I would call a reversal of Genesis 1. It is a decreation. And that is the essence of what sin is. Sin is that which leads to death. It always is that which leads to death. Again and again and again. You know, I was actually struck by this on a, just a cultural context. I, um, all of us, you know, I've been, I've been kind of obsessed with the concept of spiritual realities behind our technological age. That dominions of darkness being played out in our social media. And the more that I think about it, the less I am confident that there is any redemptive value whatsoever in much of our social media because it's driven by algorithms. And algorithms, all it takes is for you to stop on something for more than two seconds. I, like my phone last night, I'm talking with my wife, and I, like, I have my phone off in my bed, and it, like, I say something to her like, privately, and all of a sudden Siri starts giving us her opinion. Like, that's the creepiest thing. Our phone is listening to us. It's, and you can turn that off, but I didn't know that at that moment. She's like, I'm sorry, actually, what's happening in this part of the world right now? I'm like, no, Siri, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to my wife. <laughs> but, the, but algorithms, for real, all joking aside, two seconds. Now, think, think through this with me. You want to think about sin that leads to death, why we are always hell-bent on our own destruction. Um, two seconds. So you get on Instagram or you get on TikTok, or you get on Facebook, or you get on YouTube, whatever your poison is, and it just depends on what your age is, because um, all you are on Facebook is watching TikTok on Facebook, and all you are on Instagram is watching TikTok on Instagram. That's all you're doing. So, uh, so you, you get on, and a reel comes on, and most of you know what reels are. If you don't know what a reel is, God bless you. I am not going to explain it, because I don't want you to explore it. Um, but I will tell you, a reel is just a little video clip, comes on, and you watch one, and you flip up, and then it's just another one, and it's another one, and it's another one. Here's the thing I noticed. The narratives, why is it that my reels constantly reveal things that do not make me feel good inside? Like, why is it that the reels are always like some crazy car accident or car chase, or... I, I found that I got these reels coming up of fistfights in schools. And those fistfights actually present a very specific narrative that plays into the polarization of our country. And, and I was struck by that. I'm like, first of all, I'm not looking for fistfights. I'm not like, bring up the most current fistfights in America high schools. Like, I don't care. I, I like boxing, but that's not what I want to watch but it's because I paused. Because when you see something that you ought not to see, the inclination of the human heart in a fallen state is not to look away, but it's to look harder. I believe this speaks to the evil of what has been unleashed because I don't believe I'm the only one who gets some really dark garbage 
in their feeds when they look at it because we are prone to not look away from that which shocks us or that which we do not understand. And therefore, that becomes the thing that we are fed again and again. And if you watch it long enough, it begins to create a narrative that probably is not true or actual or realistic. And it tends to take complex issues and turn them into these kind of static, kind of monolithic ideas that is what's creating what to me feels like at times America being on the edge of a civil war. And I think that, that all of this, I, I share this because I believe that this is the nature of the human heart and in our sinfulness is that we always want to imitate our creator. We are made in his image, but much of creation does not recognize him as creator, nor do they recognize him as Lord, but they are still functioning out of the fact that they are made in his image, which is the desire to create and master and dominate the world. And we do things even thinking that it's good. Sorry, that was terrible. Uh, we do things thinking that it's good, and all we do is wreak more destruction, more damage, um, because the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. That's my thought. Just a thought. Um, and I started thinking that what's the greatest evil right now? Is it pornography? Or is it the internet? And I'm beginning to think that the medium actually is more dangerous than what the medium is selling because if you don't want pornography, it will find something to hook you and mesmerize you with. It will sell you some other soul-sucking reality. It'll, you'll get sucked into those, all those voices that are telling you you're not as, why can't I be as pretty or as successful as this person? Or all these things it creates the, what Gerard calls the mimetic theory of this, the desire for what others have. I just think that there's, I think we're kind of blind to think like the internet itself is neutral. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. And I think we're in a flood that's actually drowning us from the inside out. I just read this poem today um, by this famous French or English poet. And the title of the poem is, I wasn't waving, I was drowning. <laughs> I really like that a lot. <laughs> um, and I think that this is, what has just happened in the flood narrative. So everyone's drowned. Everything's drowned. And it's not because God is mean. It's because evil had infiltrated and destroyed God's good creation. It says, then God remembered Noah. And this isn't saying that he forgot <laughs> for a while. When, he says, when it says that he remembered, it's saying that he rem he's remembering his covenantal promise to Noah. And every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided, and the fountain of the deep, and the windows of the heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from all the earth. And at the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, and the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Erech. Ararat and the waters and that, that's somewhere it's very general but um, they believe that that's in somewhere around uh, on the where the borders of Turkey and Iran meet but we don't know for sure where it's at then the ark rested in the seventh month 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month and the 10th month on the first day of the month 
the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, decreation has happened due to the sinfulness of the human heart. And I promise you that little momentary diatribe I just gave you is not disconnected from this message as a whole. I just want to set the tone and we remember that what God is protecting, there is a protection happening in his judgment, a protection of, it, of his own covenantal promises to bring redemption to a world that is continually fighting against him. But here we see new creation begin. And I want you to see the, the parallel motifs. Notice in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void and the darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over what? The face of the waters. And the waters are a picture of chaos and God bringing order to chaos. And He released the chaos and the chaos destroyed the chaos of the human heart. And now He is creating afresh. And just like Genesis 1-2, there is now God putting things back in their proper place. New creation is beginning to happen. In verses 6 and 8 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. What do we have in Genesis 8? It says, and God made a wind. That, that word wind is the same as breath. It's, it's ruach. And it's that Hebrew word that can mean spirit of God. It can mean wind. It can mean breath. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is the writer of Genesis wants us to see this repetition of motif. Um, to pass over the earth and the water subsided once again. Just like in Genesis 1, six, dividing the waters from the waters. The waters that broke up from, the, um, from below and the waters that came from on high. There was this deluge that destroys the earth. I also, some people have asked me my personal view um, in regards to the flood. Was it, was it local or was it global? I see no reason to not believe that this was a global flood. Even in the usage of metaphorical or poetic language, um, there are too many explicit uh, statements speaking to dates. Uh, and more than that, um, if it was just local, then the covenant that God makes um, about never flooding the world again actually doesn't make sense because there have been lots of floods that have killed lots of people all over the world. Um, so the only thing that makes sense to me to not violate God's covenantal promise is to just take it at its word. And I think that much of the world, I think the fact that there are many flood narratives in so many cultures, especially in Mesopotamia, but there are some, some very significant differences. The gods flood the world in one of the, the flood narratives, the gods flood the world because they're, they're awakened by the, the noise of humans and annoyed that they were brought out of their sleep, so they just flood everybody. Um, and, the other, it, and then the other one, it was they, they, um, they're just like, they're angry at something that's happened, and they just flood everybody. The other key significant thing is that the ark itself and its measurements are actually very similar to what we would see as ocean liners today. Like, it actually is the shape of a ship. The, in the Mesopotamian flood narratives, it's a cube. It's really weird. It's like just a square, which doesn't really work. Um, and then the, the final thing, the most significant, is actually the response of the gods. In the Mesopotamian flood narratives, 
It's not the gods who stop the flood. It's the hero of the narrative who stops the gods and saves the world. It's the heroes who shut up the door, where in the Genesis narrative, it's God who protects, who shuts the door uh, of the ark, and it's God who causes the water to cease. So, it, it's a, yes, there is similarities, but the emphasis and the focus are very different. And, and that's why I would say that Moses gives to the children of Israel their own cosmology, and he uses the language of the Near Far East to tell them true events, true things. And you can use poetics to tell true things. So that's what's important to me um, in regards to this text. So just in case you were wondering what I thought, and like I said, I, I think you can hold a different view on that, but I still believe that this actually does the most honor to the text itself. That's, that's where I would stand on that. And I'm not going to apologize to you for thinking there was a global flood because you weren't there and neither was I. So, um, okay. Then, uh, this is the other thing that I think is so interesting. Uh, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in verse 9 of Genesis 1 in one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. Same thing. Once again, mountain, the tops of the mountains were seen at the end of this. And I think that the importance of this, this text is God is remembering his covenantal promise to Noah. He's remembering his covenantal promise um, to Adam and to Eve. And God is a God who is faithful to his intentions. And he is a God who is in the business of creating things anew. Now, the holiness and the sovereignty of God reminds us that God is not to be taken lightly. And the fact that real judgment comes on the world, even that itself is a picture of what will become a final judgment that will come upon the world when Jesus returns. And we need to understand that God is the author and the creator of this creation has the right to do with it what he wants in accordance with his character and his purposes and his plans. This is why, why Paul puts out um, in Romans, he says, if, if God chooses to destroy a clay vessel, and he's not saying that that's what he does, but he says, if that's how God works, who are you to question God? You're, you're, the, you're, the, you're the pottery. He's the potter. He can do what he wants. God's heart and God's desire, and this is one of the key things that I think Waltke points out, and is that God, God most of the time does not intervene um, in the... Uh, in the sinful activity of humanity, he honors the, the limited freedom that he has granted. Um, and he honors that because God is not interested in having robots worship him. And in order for us to truly love God and for him to love us, there needs to be a, a, a freedom. Yes, it is a freedom within limitations, but there needs to be enough freedom for relationship to actually exist. It's not, it's not relational if it's purely forced from one side. <laughs> um, and so there is a reality in which when we ask, like, why would God allow this? That, like, listen, there's no theodicy for human suffering. I don't know why the serpent's in the garden. But I will say this, is that we have to trust that God's, that what I care about is what is God going to do about it? And what I love about this narrative is it reminds me that there are patterns repeating, pointing us to the ultimate fulfillment 
which will come at the end of the age. The ultimate purpose of human history is to bring to culmination the bride or the son. And I think that that is important for us to remember. The next thing you see is the patience of Noah. And this is in light of, of God's remembrance of his sovereignty. God is causing the waters to, to subside. But here's the thing. If you were trapped in a boat with a menagerie of animals, I would be going crazy. I'm very sensitive to smells. I think I would be going nuts. In Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 to 12, it says, So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face. Once again, in the Mesopotamian narratives, the, um, the other birds are sent out first and the raven last, which is really interesting because the raven being sent out first is actually important because the reason the raven would not come back is because they would be feeding on the carcasses floating in the water, which the dove would not. Um, be, that's, there is a reason why they're called the murder of crows. Uh, and um, do you know what the collective noun is for doves? A dole of doves. Do you know what a dole is? A dole is actually receiving, like if you live on the dole, that means you're living on government assistance. It's actually about grace. It's about receiving something you don't deserve. I just find that interesting. No meaning whatsoever. I personally have a great joy in reading through collective nouns. Um, and uh, there, there's many really awesome ones. Uh, but I won't share them with you right now. Um, so, so here you see the raven sent out. And then the dove. And what does it say? It says, he also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. I don't know about you, but I find that such a beautiful sentence. Um, because Noah, as a representative man, representing the heart of God, shows that the heart of God is a preservationist. A preservationist. Noah reaches out and gently brings the dove in. No harm is brought to the dove there's a protection come back and I think that it's a powerful contrast to the raven that in its in its ability to feed on things that are dead doesn't need the protection of the ark anymore and I think that that's the whole message unto itself of are you functioning more like a raven or a, or a dove are you returning to the gentle provision and care and covering of your creator or are you feeding on things that just bring death to stay alive? Are you a carry-on bird, a part of the murder of crows, <laughs> or, or are you a part of the dole of doves? I like that. And I will say that murder of crows is cooler, it's darker, plays way better into movie titles than a dole of doves. However, that's not surprising because our hearts are keen to feed on things that are not of God. It's not surprising um, that the list of the works of the flesh versus the list of the fruit of the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit sounds like that terrible, God-forsaken TV channel called Hallmark versus HBO. I just, it's like, let's just be honest with ourselves. We like the works of the flesh, and if we can't do it ourselves because we're Christians, Maybe we can at least watch other people do it. 
And all, in all seriousness, I, I hate that in myself at times. What does Romans 1 say? Woe to you, O man, who do not only practice these things, but celebrate those who do. I've often wondered if that's speaking directly to my heart of like, why do you like John Wick so much, Josh? Because I like vengeance. Fast vengeance with quick guns. <laughs> and mainly I like Keanu Reeves. And that also might be a sin. <laughs> you know, that boy's come a long way from Bill and Ted. He has. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent the dove out from, him, from the ark. And then the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Here's the fascinating thing. The dove comes back with an olive branch in her mouth. Now this once again looks back to Genesis 1. Let the waters abound with the abundance of living creatures and let the birds fly. Oh, recreation is happening. And then even the creation of, of, uh, of the plants and the trees uh, in Genesis 1, verses 11, 11 through 12. But what I find fascinating is Noah's patience here is that the moment I knew that the ground was truly dry, not just kind of dry, but truly dry, and it's producing plant life again, I would be out of that boat in two seconds, and I would not be waiting for God. But Noah waits an additional seven days, and this shows a picture of real obedience, because in all practicality, there is no reason for him to stay in that boat, other than God had not yet given him permission to open the door. If God shut the door, then Noah knew that the right thing to do was to wait for God to open the door. And I think that this is an incredible picture for us of our tendency to either, I, I like to say, you know, we're the concept of walking with God, which is something that's attributed to Noah, it's attributed to Enoch. Um, and it's, a, it's a beautiful analogy of, it's not, a, you know, it's not a, the, the walk of Thoreau, which is the agrarian ideal, walking away from other people into the discovery of the the true individual uh, walking with god is is meant to be it, the walk is meant to be with someone else and it's the it's what i would call motion without without exhaustion that is meant to be relational in its nature and when we walk with god i think about my wife loves to go on walks and one of my great problems is i tend to walk fast and i always will my family gets mad at me because I always walk in front of them. And my complaint is that they just walk too slow. But their complaint is like, you're not actually thinking about walking with us, you're just trying to get to the next place. Um, and that may be so. Or worse, when my wife asked me to go on a walk, you know, you hold someone's hand when you walk with them and you're like, you're, it's all out of, it doesn't feel right because you're not walking at the same pace. And it's like, I either walk in front of my wife, but I think more common is me in this rainy weather to be unwilling to go on a walk with her at all and i think this is this is a a, a beautiful picture of, of something that we need to be thinking about in regards to our own intimacy with christ is that i think that sometimes we're too lazy to pursue him to follow him and then often we get too impatient with him when we get in front of him and noah is a picture of what does actually what does it mean to live by faith and part of living by faith is living according to god's timing and allowing god to be responsible for us that's all he's asking of us and that's a beautiful reality um, that we need to think about and finally we 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 go here 
In Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 to 19, it came to pass in the 601st year, this is way too specific to just be a poem, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. Didn't go out, he just looks. And what happens? Then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. The commandment of God, go out. And the commandment of God is marked by the obedience of Noah and God's blessing on that obedience. And it's a complete repetition of Genesis 1 and God blessing them. Go out, be fruitful, multiply. And this speaks to God's heart for us if we're willing to be go where He calls us to go and to be patient when He asks us to wait is that at the end of the day, He just wants our lives to be fruitful. That's what He wants from us. That's His hope for us. And it closes with this powerful picture. The sacrifice of Noah, which is once again a shadow of Jesus. For the righteousness of one man and his sacrifice becomes the salvation of the world. All of it pointing us to Jesus himself. And it says in Genesis 8, 20 and 22, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, this is something that I, goes back to that initial thing I was saying about the current age that we live in and the ways that we are hell-bent on drowning ourselves in sin uh, is God recognizes the reality of the human condition and he already has in play a redemptive purpose that will be his once and for all solution to that dilemma. It says, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. This is not a reversal of the ground's cursing, by the way, in, um, in Genesis 3. Um, but it is, a, it is the uh, recognition that he will never again bring total destruction on the world in this same way. Um, and until there, there is the return, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, I will never do this for man's sake, although his imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. What is God saying there? That mercy is going to be the thing that tips the scale in his engagement with human history. He lets us know that he is a God who is able to decreate as fast as he creates. But that's not who he is. The core of his being, the scale always tips toward mercy. Although man's hell-bent on evil, I'm not going to destroy him like that. What he's going to work for instead is his salvation. He's going to fulfill the very promises that he made. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, while the earth remains, speaking of a time, it will have an end. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. I love that. That, that comes with a, the promise of a closure to the story. But I, I think that this picture of God and His recognition, He has revealed His power 
He, is, he has rid the earth in this moment of its corruption, but we're going to see that corruption comes right back. We're going to see, once again, a parallel to the fall. Adam's fall um, from the eating of the fruit. Noah's fall from the eating of the vine. The drinking of the vine until he's drunk. Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. Noah's nakedness and shame as he lie naked before his, before his sons. Um, nothing new under the sun. Our ability to create and then misuse what we have created to bring about the vineyard is planted for good and what does it produce? Drunkenness. We create things today that we think are for good and it often brings destruction. This is the nature and the reminder that what matters most in this age because none of it takes God by surprise. We're already told here in Genesis chapter 8 that he knows this is what our hearts are hell-bent upon. All he asks of us is, I know what you are. Get in the only thing that I have created that will keep you safe. And that is, abide in Christ. Whoever abides in me. I would say, like, what, what's the key to the Christian life? Just staying with Jesus. Remaining with Jesus. Following Jesus. Staying put when he tells you to stay put. Going out when he tells you to go out. It doesn't matter where he leads you. What matters is who is leading you. And the question that I have for you is, are you willing to be a conduit of righteousness? That is, a conduit of the very presence of Jesus through your submission and surrender of your life to him. Because anything else is choosing to live as a shadow. It's choosing death. And God wants you to build your life on something solid something that will be transformative and something that can actually become a life preserver for those that are drowning you can be the ark for those around you that are drowning by inviting them to trust in the one that has saved you so my question is has he saved you and if he has do you know him and are you walking with him are you staying with him or are you jumping back in the water are you the dove that flies back into his hand? Or are you the raven that goes out and feeds on dead things? It's a good question for us to ask, is it not? All I can say is God is good. And his mercy is new every day. And no matter where you've been, I may have thought you were waving and you might have been drowning. Such a good poem. Um, and such a great analogy. Because often we can be raising our hands, waving at people, pretending like everything's okay, when in actuality we're dying inside. Jesus wants us to come out of the dark and to come into the light. And that means being exposed, but it also is the key to our salvation. That's why the cross will always be the symbol of the Christian faith, because it is through death that we find life. So may we turn to him. Amen.